time now for another Pinball Profile, a special one, number 150 here. And you can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email us pinballprofile at gmail.com. Please subscribe on either iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And check out our under construction website, pinballprofile.com, which I'm a little worried because it's under construction. My next guest might have hacked it. I know he has done some things like that when it comes to programming of pinball machines so maybe i'm safe we'll find out kaylee george joins us right now hey kaylee how are you buddy hey it's great thanks for having me on my website's safe you don't have all my passwords hey if you get the exploits i'll find them yes that is true (laughs) and you know a lot of people are new to pinball so maybe they don't know about these exploits but you sir are a cerebral assassin when it comes to finding these i can only imagine programmers when they see you go up to a game in the files they're sweating just a little bit, especially if it's a newer game. Actually, it doesn't even have to be a newer game because you found some classic ones and we're definitely going to get into that. But that aside, you're a great player. Won two majors, almost won two more in the last calendar year too because uh, you were top four last year at Pinburg. And then at IFPA 14, you lost to a guy that you really were a mentor to in Raymond Davidson at IFPA 14 in Denmark. That was a lot of fun to watch you two go at it. Yeah, Raymond's turned into an amazing player. So, yeah, you might say it was uh, student beats master, but uh, he's definitely the champ now, and uh, he deserved it. It was great. I guess if you got to lose to anybody, that's the guy you want to lose to, right? Oh, man, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, we were having a bunch of fun. Like, I don't like playing tournament pinball when it's super serious. I mean, I guess some people say that I seem like I'm super serious when I play, but all I want to do is goof around the time. So there was nobody better to have in that final and to uh, make it super fun, win or lose. We were having a great time. Now, back then, were you actually living over in Europe? Weren't you in the Netherlands last year? Yeah, that's right. The, that tournament took place in Denmark. The last couple of years, I've been living in the Netherlands, in uh, Utrecht, which is near uh, Amsterdam. So, uh, yeah, it was a short trip, a long trip for him, uh, but it was great to play in Europe. And now you're back in Seattle, where you've been for many, many years, coming back. And tell people what you're doing now, because it's kind of cool. And I always wonder about all the great players. When are they all going to work for the pinball companies? Well, you are working in gaming just a little differently. Yeah, I've been working uh, designing games for uh, about 15 years, from PC games to Xbox games to PlayStation games. Uh, Yeah, and these days I work at a company here in Seattle, uh, working on the Halo franchise. Uh, That's been super exciting. Uh, It's a game I've always always loved and uh, now I get to uh, design the multiplayer for it so that's amazing I know we were talking with Josh Sharp and he was talking about raw thrills and the halo on location just you shut everything else down you just build those machines because it's a quote-unquote runner as he said so so hot with a, a great franchise like halo so that has to be fun to see the success of that continuing so many years later yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sad I did not get a chance to uh, or the opportunity to work on the arcade machine they just released uh, based on Halo because uh, I would love to be able to work on a more, more physical game. And that's why I like pinball. You know, it's, it's still games, but it's a different kind of game. And I can go and work in front of a PC all day long and then come home and work on a physical pinball machine. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's great. Have you ever had any pinball companies come after you and say, hey, why don't you come on board? Maybe even as a defense mechanism so that you don't attack and destroy some of these uh, <laughs> programs that have already been in place. Yeah, no, you never know. I, I would love to work on uh, on, a, on a pinball machine someday. I think it would be amazing to be a pinball uh, designer. And, uh, you know, there's only so many manufacturers and, and so many places to do it. There's certainly not the same uh, number of job openings as there are in uh, the game industry, of, uh, at least on PC and uh, consoles. <laughs> 
you've been surrounded by pinball for quite some time. There's just so much in the Seattle area. And even when you're in the Netherlands, the Dutch pinball scene's uh, quite something. I don't know much about it. Maybe yeah, absolutely. tell us about that Dutch scene. Yeah, the D- Dutch pinball kind of... Uh, pinball in that part of Europe uh, is a bit different. I mean, Seattle's exploded over the last 10, 15 years uh, just with moving from few machines to really kind of one of the, the main places in the USA uh, in terms of cities that have games on location. Uh, I mean, you can play a league or small tournament every day of the week, if not two every day of the week. You know, and, and in Europe, and the Netherlands, there's a lot of little events, there's a bunch of games that you can play, but a lot of it is kind of behind uh, closed doors in people's houses and basements. You know, there's just the same amount of thriving scene, but there's not as many games on motion. Um, but one amazing thing they have in the Netherlands is they have a pinball club that anybody can be a part of, and they've uh, used their membership fees to rent a giant, you know, 40,000 square foot warehouse where they've got a couple hundred games, and you can go there and play their events and, and go on weekends and stuff, and uh, yeah, it's a really, really awesome scene. Hmm. Big, big warehouse. Lots and lots of games. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> yeah, right? It's kind of like, uh, has, has has some of the same vibes of Papa, but, uh, you know, still Papa's the king. <laughs> we saw you in the playoffs this year at Pinburg. I know it wasn't probably the results you want. What was your Pinburg experience this year? Yeah, my, I was playing pretty solid and steady in Pinburg. I had... Uh, Kind of a funny last two rounds where I went from maybe, uh, you know, seeding around three or fifth or something like that down to, I don't know, wherever I ended up barely qualifying <laughs> by getting a six and a two or a six and a four in the last rounds. You got a four? Um, but those, no, no, I think I got a two. I, th- I, would, I would think my last round is a two, my round ten, if you go look it up, which is pretty amazing. I don't think I've ever had a two there. But, you know, like so sometimes, like, I mean, Pinburg is really a lot of, uh, you know, avoiding the bris, as we say, which is a reference to Indy 500. You got to try and kind of avoid all the the issues, the bad bounces, and and you know rulings and whatever kind of that's pinball type of stuff that goes on because you're going to play playing on so many different games and so many different eras. And I kind of had a a perfect storm of that stuff going on around ten of of just a bunch of different bad bounces and bad reads on my part and house balls and all sorts of stuff and ended up with, uh, I think, just like a second on a bonsai run or something, and that was it. <laughs> well, day two makes sense to be tougher, too. When you're in A, you're going to be playing the better players, too. You started off okay in A, I guess. I mean, oh, six and six, but then a 10 and two. There's the Kaylee we know. And then, yeah, it got a little tough. I guess Jermaine, who you you certainly know, Andre and Jim Belcito in a group. Those two made the final four. You still pulled out an eight and four. And then I'm looking. I'm like, did he really get a two? I'm looking here. Group nine. You're with Steve Bowden, uh, Mahesh, and Raymond Davidson. Yeah, you got four there in round nine. And and you were seated number five. So when you're seated number five in round nine, here's what you're playing. You're playing the number one, four, five, and eight. That's a tough round. And then, yeah, you said the last one, a two and ten against Becker, John Tomsich, and Tim McCool. And that <laughs> you said that almost knocked you out? Uh, yeah, I think uh, if I pulled a... Zero there, I would have been out, and I think the one was the tiebreaker, or maybe the clean, the clean tiebreak, because of course I would have been the high seed based on the tiebreak rules and won the tiebreak. But uh, yeah, that was pretty amusing. Uh, yeah, it's funny. I mean, I don't know. You talk to a lot of people, and uh, I usually play better against better players, um, and I play worse against less experienced players. Uh, so actually, it's a bit against the norm for me to have a bad round in a situation like that where you're playing against you know, the top seated guys for the day, I can usually bring it and 
rise to the occasion. I'm looking at the games in that round. The Walking Dead. Do you remember what you got on that? Oh, I don't know. It was something garbage and, you know. <laughs> Cosmos. I can't imagine I got much. Yeah. Cosmos. You can take a zero because everyone gets a zero on there. Anything you get is gravy. That's a tough game. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those games where, you know, you can just basically plunge out lanes all day if that's how the ball rolls. So. Yep. Bonsai Run, well, that's that's got some control to it. And Supersonic, you know, I guess if uh, you can rip the spinner, but you got to catch it on the flippers, I guess. Yeah, it's tough. You know, I mean, uh, you got to be ready for things on that era of games. And I don't know, memory serves me. You remember the drains. And I think I got kind of inserted a couple times with the ball. Like, looks like it's going to arc over a flipper to the other one. And then it hits some sort of cupped insert and flies down the middle. And nothing you can do in that case. So... Listen, kind of how it goes. I do not yeah. want to gloat on Pinburn <laughs> because you've had so many successes. When you said yourself, I got a two, I'm like, I got to check this out. There's no way. Okay, <laughs> it, okay, it happened, but still. No, it's funny. You know, you look back across, uh, and I th- if I think back across tournaments I've entered, uh, for main events in tournaments, Pinburn is the only event that I've attended in the last, I'd say, 10 years that I have not qualified for in the main event. And I've done that twice at Pinburg and I've not qualified for A. Hmm. Which uh, kind of goes to show that it can be a tough tournament and, uh, you know, it's uh, not easy even for uh, some more experienced players. I'm always amazed to see the people you expect to be there, yourself included. By the way, I had you in that pool. <laughs> that little pool, that little pool, I put my money on you. I put it on Josh. I don't know why. It was probably guilt. And uh, a couple other people. I had Chris Stevens. He made top four. He made me a little bit of a change, but uh, it is tough. I mean, watching Colin McAlpine, last year's winner, you know, just a, a couple of bad games and uh, and there you go. And, and that's even Keith. You remember last year too. In 2017, he went 0-0. Zero, zero. Was dialed in. I forget what the next game was. I assume high hand, and then and then he came back on Andromeda and, and RoboCop. But yeah, that was crazy. And even this year, he took a zero on the first game too on Guardians. So it happens to the best players, I guess. So uh, to see a rough one, I don't want to gloat on the rough one. Listen, no, there's so many funny. great you know, successes. You, you, you listen to uh, you watch you watch Keith play, and yeah, you know he pulls a zero on Guardians, and then ends up going first on the next game. And uh, <laughs> it was funny listening to the uh, the commentator booth on that one because uh, they assumed that Elwin would pick fourth, and my expectation was that he would pick first because I could tell he was just pissed for not playing and, and just wanted to have some fun and play the damn game. So uh, that's very very much in uh, from the way I know Elwin that uh, for him to pick first there makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to play his game and play well basically no matter what the state is of the other players on machines like that. So. You know, I think uh, getting himself in the right mood there was the right choice. I'll tell you one thing that I've said many, many, many times, and I think of guys like you. When you play Pinberg match play, the better players are going to shine. When you play Papa, the really good players are going to shine because that ticket system is so, so difficult. I mean, we all in a pump and dump can have a lucky game once in a while. But to do it on four or in the case of Papa five times in a row that's tough to do and i know you miss it i miss it too i hope it comes back uh for next year we'll see but is it safe to say that's your favorite tournament yeah i'd say that's uh, uh classic papa world championships as in like the classic version of that tournament you know they offer the a division the world championships there that's where it's at and that's kind of in my mind the gold standard of pinball tournaments um their format is you know you pick uh five games out of a bank of ten you play them uh, in any order you want, but you play them all as one group, and the scores are all treated as your entry into the tournament. 
as one little combined unit. And you can do that over and over again, but only those groupings of scores are going to be treated together. And so you really need to lay down like very competent scores across those five machines so that you can be ranked highly in the tournament. And it really is a format that rewards consistency and the ability to perform at a certain level uh, many times uh, in a row rather than just having a great game here and there. Uh, and I think there's uh, there was really a very interesting uh, amount of strategy to that tournament and intensity and pressure. Uh, and you don't find that at a lot of other events. And uh, it was pretty unique to Papa with the way that they would uh, set up their games and their facility and as well with, uh, with that qualifying style. It's great. And what I noticed a year ago was that the game selection in the A division and really all the divisions too, in years past, there was more of a newer game feel because they had a classics division, but that wasn't the case last year when Escher won it. There were games like Jungle Queen, there were games like Skateball, and it was a nice mix as opposed to the quote-unquote Sternament. And that's not a knock on Stern by any means. What that usually means when people talk about Sternaments, meaning all new games in a tournament lineup. I like the mix of games. Yeah, uh, you know, you go back uh, in time in Papa and you look, say, at Papa... 9 through 14 or something like that. Uh, that's kind of like a more standard mix of what you would find in Papa qualifying. They would pick the best of the best, uh, most competent tournament pinball machines that were modern, DMD and greater generally, um, that type of stuff. Uh, the last few years, they've been throwing in some uh, what most people would call classics games. And uh, yeah, I think that's terrible. And I think it's really silly, and I don't know why they do it. Um, Seriously? You see that at other tournaments. Yeah, you see, you see that at other tournaments where what is the purpose of having a classics division where you're going to specifically have uh, machines and uh, they're of a specific vintage? and have a competition on those machines and declare that classics and have the tournament there, and then also have a different main event. I don't see why you have both if you're just going to mix it up. You might as well just have one event. And I think that's kind of the magic of like Pinburg is that they have, you know, hey, you have to play across all these ears and stuff like that. I love that kind of old-school Papa was you have to throw down on the most dialed, tight, fast, competitive modern pinball machines, and that's what I loved. And, you know, you look at the way people pick in classics, and it's like, or sorry, pick in Papa when those classics games are there, you know, it's a, it, it's kind of a, it's a sideshow. You know, those only get picked uh, when somebody's kind of trying to throw a monkey in the wrench or throw some randomization into it. And I want to see the championship determined by the person who's the best player, not the person who gets the least house balls. I'll give you that for some of the older machines. Shot fired off the bow at Papa. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love you, Mark. I, okay, I don't know the reasoning why Papa does that, but I would guess a couple of reasons. One, they're quicker play times. When you look at some of the newer games, you can have some long, long games. And we saw the lineups be, that game's averaging eight minutes, whereas something like Jungle Queen might be three, four minutes. Uh, Skateball, three, four minutes. So maybe it moved the lines quicker. And two, it's maybe, and I don't know if they're doing this, I'm guessing, it's better for streams on some of the older games. I'm not talking EMs, but maybe some of the solid states. Hey, there's a, re- there's a reason why High Hand has appeared in the Pinberg finals many times. It's because when random BS happens on that game, the crowd goes bananas. At least that's my interpretation of why they keep using it. I don't know. I think it's a pretty garbage tournament game. Yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's certainly maybe a consideration. I'm not going to speak for those guys, but I can, I can see tournaments picking those styles of games because they are interesting for viewership. They have a lot of r- more randomization, uh, a lot more crazy saves that are options for players to make. 
but I think it's a pretty weird thing to do to choose your games in a tournament based on how it's going to view. So I think tournaments are treading a fine line. They go down that too much. Uh, their player base might not find that interesting anymore. Yeah, I don't get the high hand thing either because in Josh's final round, if I recall watching it, I think he knocked all the targets down, maybe he left one at most in ball one. And then all he's got to do is try to skillfully drain in the out lanes or try to hit the pop bumper and maybe it bounces into that saucer. It just seemed like what a grind. And then even Starpool, which we saw in the finals. I mean, that was tough to catch up on. I, so I, I'm on your side in that one, Kaylee. I'm like, uh, you know what? The great thing about Harlem Globetrotters was even though Keith rolled it at 1.1 with Andre coming up next, Andre could do it too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Har- Harlem is like one of the first solid states is like uh, another kind of gold standard game to show your skills on. I mean, if you're going to be playing those eras of games in a tournament, which totally makes sense for Pinburg, then there's kind of no better game to kind of have two players go to head-to-head on as, as Harlem Globetrotters. And it's all about, you know, a bunch of straightforward stuff, like how are you going to trap the ball? How are you going to get control? How are you going to tap pass from right to left? Or how are you going to get the ball when it's on the right flipper to the left when you want to be there? Uh, you know, what are you going to do about hitting the gate and it opening it up? How are you going to get those drops down? When are you going to pull the trigger on shooting the upper left spinner versus shooting more drops, things like that? And also, if you go back and you watch Elwin this year, there's a lot more subtle stuff like... How do you deal with the ball when it's going to be hitting that little space right between the two left flippers where it hits the tip of the top left flipper and it hits part of the meat of the lower left flipper? When that happens, the ball can just go sending straight down the middle, but you're also at risk for scissoring yourself where the ball flies through there. And he has like these perfect reads on his balls where he's got it just right where he lets the ball make contact just enough to flip it away, and that's where the magic is on that game. So you like scissor flippers. <laughs> well, I mean, they're interesting. They add an interesting element. I mean, you know, you watch most of the high-level players play a game like Harlem, and they will probably never shoot a ball off the top flipper if they can avoid it. Are you saying the good players don't use the top flipper on scissor flippers? I like it for the, I think, a paragon, maybe ripping the spinner, but uh, maybe that's just because I'm lousy. Yeah, I don't know. You, you, if you watch, uh, you know, a lot of uh, the top players uh, play a game with scissor flippers, and um, you know, it's very rare, actually, I think, to see anybody take a shot off a uh, off an upper flipper, unless it's a kind of a more defensive or reactionary move. Um, you know, on all those games, you can always hit anything from the two main flippers, uh, but it's a great like utility flipper for controlling the ball, doing a drop catch up top. Uh, and then letting it roll off the upper flipper down to a trap on the bottom flipper or something like that. You know, everybody oohed and odd while Elwin kind of did that on Harlem Globetrotters on the left flipper there, where like the ball was in jeopardy of rolling between the flippers. But that's kind of like a standard move. You wanna you wanna use that as a utility to gain control and give yourself the time to take a really controlled shot off a lower flipper. So I think they're great. And 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 of course, you know, the fact that you can lose the ball between them makes it that much more exciting. <laughs> It did make for great TV for sure. It was, of course, he's not going to go through it, but he <laughs> looked like he was right at the edge there. But oh, I got an upper flipper for you to use on a, it's not really scissor flippers, Starship Troopers. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting. It's super awkward though. Like, I don't like, I'm not a, this is going to be strange because there are plenty of games that I like with extra buttons around the flippers, but I find Starship Troopers uncomfortable because of that upper flipper there makes it hard to to actually use the other main buttons for me but yeah that one's great like you can do stuff like balls coming down an in lane where it would normally not be able to be trapped and you can kind of like 
slow it down with the little tiny midget flipper and get it to trap and things like that. I mean, everybody always says that you can you can trap a ball on the lower flipper and then use the tiny one to shoot it into the new coal. And I've never met a Starship Trooper where you can do that. So that's like some sort of magical mystery to me. <laughs> All right, I'm not using top flippers anymore. If Kaylee doesn't and Keith doesn't, I guess that's what I have to do too. But I'll give you two games where you're talking about multiple buttons on the side. Yeah, I'm not even talking about action button. I'm talking on the side here. I had to play the great Dennis Dorbin game, Blackwater 100, for the first time ever at Pinburg. And I'm like, okay, I got to figure these flippers out. And Haunted House actually has the same thing too, where you have to, the upper, <laughs> okay, I'm, I was, if you're not used to it the first few times, it, it can screw you up anyway. And then Lexi Lightspeed, there are three on each side. Have you played that? Yeah, I mean, let's just keep rattling off boat anchors, you know? Why don't we put, uh, what else can go on the log pile? <laughs> hey, wait a second. You're working for the company that makes Halo. If you ever get to a pinball company, I know you're going to put, forget the action button, you're going to have a gun come out. And I don't mean like a handle like in Lethal Weapon 3 or Dirty Harry. You're going to have an actual gun holster. you got to fire at the LCD. That's what's going to happen when you get into pinball. I know it. It's just a Yeah, well, yeah why not? Let's, uh, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, often that stuff is kind of gimmicky. I mean, what is it on Blackwater 100? It's, uh, it's just to like launch multiball or something? Like, I don't know. It's like they didn't have the tech to have the switches they wanted there or something. I don't know. It's, or is it just for the upper flippers, I guess, that they have the extra buttons? I don't even remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's one of those era games that's got the carrot flippers on it. At least that's what we call them. You know, they've got a, they're a quarter inch longer than regular flippers, so they're three and a quarter inch long. And uh, yeah, man, the throw on those flippers is so long. They just feel like these infinite trap monsters. There's a lot of other games that shipped with those, like mousing around and stuff, that feel a lot nicer if you just throw a standard set on there. So we've talked about papa format with the tickets we've talked about pinberg and match play i haven't i don't think i've played in a tournament with you other than no i don't think i have where it's been a pump and dump i would be scared to death if i saw you in a pump and dump and guys (laughs) like you forget it like if you get one game on it maybe it's match play maybe you get lucky pump and dump forget it about all the great players when they get on a few times game over yeah it's interesting uh some people say that pump and dump is you know, oh, on a pump-and-dump format, people are going to pay to win. I mean, I'm kind of deviating from your question here, but I'm going to get into something else. You so just like, described oh. my whole play. Yeah, so, the, you know, they say, oh, well, pump-and-dump, like, so-and-so who can afford $100 at this tournament has a much better chance at this tournament than somebody with $50 or whatever. Or, you know, oh, somebody qualified high in a pump-and-dump. Well, that's because it's a pump-and-dump. You look across basically any format that anybody's ever invented for competitive pinball uh that's you know say a respected event or a higher level event or something like that and look at the people who generally qualify or are very close and you're going to see a lot of the same names in there you know so whether it's pump and dump whether it's pop a format with card systems whether it's three strikes knockout whether it's head-to-head double elim whatever the good players are going to bring it at the right times and yeah something like pump and up you know somebody can have you know a lucky good game here a lucky good game there but it's pretty hard for somebody to buy their way into a pump and dump. And if they do, and if that is a thing that would even happen, I'm not sure if it could, you know, they're going to get a rude awakening in a finals format uh, where you're forced to perform on command. <laughs> Once again, you've described my entire pinball career. Get lucky, qualify in a few pump and dumps, shell out a few bucks, 
have to play in the playoffs, top two advance. See you later, Teolis. You've just described my entire career. Thanks a but lot. But there is Teolis. a benefit to that because I think the school of hard knocks and pinballs is and pinball is in the finals. That's where you learn a bunch of stuff. And so, you know, you make it there a few times. Most people, you know, once they start getting good, they might start qualifying for events and finding that they bomb out right away. They can't play at the same level they want, things like that. And, you know, the more you, I mean, competing in and of itself is a skill. And then competing in finals in and of itself is a skill. You know, those are the things that everybody has to learn, and it just takes time and experience. It is a learning experience for sure. And again, we talked off the top about there are a lot of new people in pinball competitions or in pinball in general, whether it's Which leagues. is great. Sure it is. It's fantastic. Although too many young people, I want to get them out because they're too damn good. <laughs> Let some of us old farts have a couple more years of glory. Then you can take over. I'm not including you in the old farts. I'm just saying. Well, it's, it's easier to learn these days. I mean, you can go to YouTube and you can watch... Any of the great pinball players play a bunch of competitions, watch how they won, watch all these little pepper moves. I mean, the first time I tried to figure out how to do a live trap in a game, like I had to look at like an animated GIF somebody had done out of like frames in Microsoft Paint. And I'm like, so like the ball, it's like going to hit the flipper when it comes up to the top. Like, what is this showing me? Like, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a video of somebody doing those things. And now it's like, well, you can see all the flipper moves that you want to do. You can see when you should do them, maybe when you shouldn't, when they're a bad idea, when they resulted in a drain. But you can also just go up and look at all the strategies on these games. I mean, if you want to put in the time right now, you can learn uh, the strategy of competitive pinball at an at an order of magnitude faster than you used to be able to because you used to just have to go out and play with people. You know, I probably should spend some more time watching some of the tutorials, but the videos I like to watch are some of the classic matches and you are in many of them. I talked about you being a cerebral assassin. Here's some history for those that are new in pinball about what Kaylee George is all about. He discovers exploits like no one else. Elwin would be the other guy, but my goodness, let's go over some of these exploits that you found. All right, Pinberg a few years ago, quarterfinals, uh, let's say about three years ago. It's a classic one. I wish Carl D'Angelo was on the phone right now, but he would remember it. Who done it? <laughs> yeah, and Carl was a very good sport about this and he's a good friend and uh yeah carl carl had an amazing game on whodunit in the quarterfinal he rolled the game twice he put up over 20 billion uh after his last ball i had one ball to play i think this was probably our game two or three i did not have a lot of points i needed a win uh i had barely nothing on the scoreboard and uh you know i know whodunit well and i just hadn't played a, a great first two balls and carl left the game in a very unique state there's not a lot of High-level players that had really done a deep dive on Who Done It. It's a game that you know people find interesting, but has never really been considered that competitive of a game. And uh, but I always liked it, so I picked one up a, a while back, and uh, you know just started playing it a bunch and digging through the rules and how they all work. And and uh, one of the one of the exploits I found was that there's a situation where you can cause the center bank that moves up and down. It's very similar to Attack from Mars or what you might find on Avatar or Spider-Man. Uh, you can actually cause that to be stuck in the down state in, with a software glitch. And, uh, you know, I didn't have, even have enough ball time to try and set that up. But Carl, by accident, on his last ball, had caused that gate to get stuck down. And it won't reset uh, until some very specific conditions are met. And so when I went up to play my ball, I see the gate's stuck down, and I had seen it happen on Carl's uh, 
Carl's game, and so I asked Kevin Martin, I said, hey, uh, he's tournament director. The gate's down, it's a software thing, uh, what's the ruling, you know? Should we fix it? Should I play on? He says, play on. <laughs> so, you know, I've got, I've got 20 billion to cut back on that game. I mean, that's like if somebody put up 65 billion on Attack from Mars, or 800 million on Spider-Man. I mean, that's a pretty meaty score. Maybe not that much, but... So, you know, I just said, well, I'm in for the, I'm in for the chopping wood, and just shot the center ramp probably, uh, a few hundred times to grind out pity points <laughs> through a bunch of tiny multi-balls. You got the elevator madness, you know, you probably walk away a couple hundred million from that. You got the penthouse party, a couple hundred million there. Only cashing in, uh, roof wizard modes when, uh, they were definitely gonna happen, and I was confident on my shot making. You know, and whatever, 40 minutes later, came back over the top with 23 some odd billion and uh, took the win home. So sometimes it takes a little bit of knowledge and a little luck from the other players to uh, pull some of those exploits off. <laughs> Wasn't there a player that played behind you too? Yeah, and that's what, you know, that's what if you ever go back and watch that match, that's what's going on in the commentary that came in a bit late to that round and we're kind of wondering why I was grinding away so methodically uh, going over the top with such a big score when, you know, it would be rare for any other player to come back on me. But of course, it was hard for the... Uh, the guys in the booth to see that Carl had already rolled the game twice. <laughs> I can't believe that Carl actually put in who done it at Indisc last year. <laughs> your, your, name, your name may have come up once or twice, and he was like, "Oh, yeah." Well, you know, I, he, he may, you know, he's extremely creative about finding uh, ways of uh, disabling stuff. I think one uh, there are a couple people out there who have modified some ROMs. That may be be something that has been modified out in a very custom custom ROM set, you know, so he might have got his hands on that or figured out a way through manipulating the game physically to make that impossible, but uh, I like that he's still using it, because it's a good game, and it, it is hard to pull off that state. Actually, he just put your face on the bash gate. That's all he did. Change it. <laughs> uh, well, luckily, I believe, if my memory serves me correct, that Carl also moved on in that round, so it wasn't uh, too many sour grapes. Let's go to CSI, something you did at Papa, and you found an exploit while practicing on that game. Yeah, so, you know, Papa's got, you know, however many games in their tournament, 100, but they've also got the full amount of their collection on the floor as uh, practice games. And, uh, you know, CSI is kind of from this era of Stern where uh, they were putting games out a little bit quicker. It didn't seem like they had as much time to put into the games and as much money. And, uh, you know, the games are simpler but still fun. But, uh, you know... CSI is a bit of a guilty pleasure, and, and one of the things on that game is that bonus X is just huge, and you have to roll through the end lanes to, to get bonus X on that game, and, and it's kind of a grind, and uh, it's pretty well balanced in general, but noticing uh, there that uh, it has kind of standard valid playfield rules, and for those that don't know, uh, games are often set up so that when you plunge the ball into play, a certain number of unique features on the game need to be hit or activated by the ball before the game considers the ball has actually been put in play. And it's, a, and it's a safety for ripping off customers on location. You don't want somebody to uh, have a ball, they plunge it, and it doesn't do anything, and then it just ends their ball. Or the game's really not sure what happens to a ball that's put into the plunger lane. It thinks it's there, but it's not sure, so it wants to guarantee that the player had some action. Uh, and so what that means for CSI is that the game has to hit three unique features on the playfield before the ball is considered valid and it will not give you a free ball back if you drain. So on CSI, I discovered, you know, you can plunge the ball short, get it on a flipper with no switches hit, then you can alley pass to a in lane or 
one of the many inlanes, because it has three, on the opposite side of the playfield. Gets you one-third of your progress towards your bonus X, and then you can dump the ball back in the drain, get the ball back for free, do it over and over and over again, and then you can max the bonus out on that game before you even start ball one and then continue. And so I brought this up to Mark Steinman, who is one of the main guys behind the Papa Tournament uh, that year, and I said, ha funny thing I found. Uh, you can max the bonus out on CSI before you start ball one. <laughs> and he said, damn it! I wanted to use that in the Papa lineup some year, and now we can't. This is terrible, you jerk. And I said, well, put it in there. We'll see what happens. But he never did. <laughs> That's so funny. I think I once heard a story about you. Was it a post you did talking about, oh, wait till you see what I do on Iron Man? And then they pulled Iron Man from a bank? because Yeah, so uh, this is all my personal opinion. But I I felt like Papa as a tournament, there's many people behind Papa, and, you know, I'm probably putting more thought into it than is the reality. But I feel like over the last few years, they've been manipulating some games in their tournament lineups in ways that I felt like were entering an interesting ethical territory from a tournament director, um, where games were being modified in a way that affected a very small percentage of the competitive tournament population. So it would be like, and no specific examples, uh, you know, like, it'd be like, oh, there's, a, there's an exploit on this game where this one guy we heard can do this thing, and so now for the whole of the tournament population, we've disabled such and such. And it's kind of like, well, that's interesting. If you kind of go down that rabbit hole a lot, it's like you have a game like, say, like Attack from Mars. Imagine there was two world champions that were going to be playing Attack from Mars, and we'd heard that one guy can shoot the center saucer really well and has a method for never losing the ball and just crushes that game. So as a tournament director, do you disable the center saucer because one guy is really good at it? So they weren't quite doing that, but you know there were some interesting things like disabling the plunger on two different Stern games where uh, really good players, and it actually takes quite a bit of skill, could exploit the valid playfield on the game and get some good points and some things going before the game really started. And if you put 100 people on that game and have them try and do it, you know, I'd say a very small handful will actually be able to be successful. And the ones that attempt it and aren't successful, it will actually be detrimental to their game. So it's a really interesting risk and reward. I just saw that recently. What game was it? Yeah, so they, 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 they've they done that uh, the last few years with Ripley's Believe It or Not, as well yes. as Sopranos, which is maybe a little bit more acceptable in my mind. But anyway, so, you know, uh, for whatever reason, one day I was a little miffed they were doing that to games, so I thought I'd run an experiment, which is to pretend that I had found an exploit on one of the games in the Papa lineup that I did not like at all. I knew you did it for that reason. I knew it. <laughs> see if I could get them to change something about the game or pull it from the Papa bank so then I wouldn't have to have the option of playing it or prove that maybe that they were going to try and change something based on one player's opinion about how to play a game. And sure enough, after posting that, uh, they wrote a new rule <laughs> into the Papa rule set, which was if a player is being found loosely uh, to be exploiting a game in a way that is deemed unacceptable or too exploity, it's a really gray area rule, then the game can be called invalid by the tournament directors. So During uh, play? Basically. It's kind of like catch-all, which is already in the rules, which is basically like the directors will do what they want to do to make the tournament great, which is good. Uh, but I think it's kind of funny that there's a rule there that's basically, in my opinion, came out of a of kind of a little joke I played on them in a forum. But I don't know. Maybe that rule was already in the works, and that's all in my head. In that rule, did the first letter of every sentence spell Kaylee? <laughs> I have no idea. Who knows? 
me and Mark are good friends, so uh, you know it's all in good fun. Listen, we talked about Who Done It. We talked about CSI. Let's not forget Congo too. Getting gray for free. Yeah, there's a there's a game, a similar classic uh, valid playfield exploit shenanigans you can do on that game. You can uh, you need three individual features on the game to be activated. Minus uh, like the left outline is uh, considered a playfield validating switch. So you can experiment with a lot of fun on that game, and you can shoot the gray shot, which is in the upper left side of the playfield. It starts spelling out gray, leading to awards with the movable monkey under the playfield. And at the start of your ball, you can plunge short to a flipper, hit no switches, shoot it up, hit the gray switch, have the ball come down, dump it in the drain on purpose, and start over again. So you can start every ball by playing gray if you are accurate enough. And in fact, you can also do it multiple times mid-ball for every lock that you make. So uh, that can be uh, highly lucrative if you possess those skills. There's also a very rare unknown exploit on Congo, first time world premiere, is that if you plunge the right outlane, you can do that as many times as you want at one million points a pop over and over again. The right outlane? So you plunge right out of the right ball plunge lane, dribble it out of there, right into the right end lane, and spell Zinge, which is what you spell on the rollovers, as much as you want for a million points a pop. I'm not sure how lucrative that is, because if you actually, it's considered a playfield validating switch, but because you're hitting the same one over and over again, it will still give you the ball back, and the moment you do anything else and then go out, your ball is over. So it's pretty risky. <laughs> I've never had the chops to, uh, to try that one in a tournament. Kaylee, how do you find this stuff out? You think about how you play games, and a lot of people play games on location. They play games that are probably set up pretty nice, pretty reasonable, pretty liberal tilts. You know, a lot of operators, leave their settings pretty friendly. They're going to have people coming up paying money for these games. They don't want them to run away with a bad taste in their mouth. And you kind of compare that to worth how most tournament games are set up, which is, hey, we want to limit ball times. We really just only want to see the best players rise to the surface. Uh, we don't need hour-long games. Let's make these games more difficult. Let's tighten the tilts. Let's widen the outlines. Let's make them steeper. Those types of things. Those types of things you see show up in a tournament. So if you actually start playing on those types of games more, or even if you have the uh, opportunity and privilege to own some games and set them up extremely difficult, some of these strategies start rising to the surface. Maybe not plunging the outlane, but when a game is set up incredibly difficult, you very quickly start realizing where the risk and reward shots are, what shots are absolutely risky and are eliminating your ball from play, and which shots are less so. And, uh, you know, when I get a game or I'm playing games, I often try and play ones that are set up very difficult or set my own games up that way. And these kind of little little things rise to the surface. I mean, you take a game and you set it up crazy hard, you make put shorter flippers on it, those types of things. I've been known to put games on two-ball play or one-ball play, Instead of three-ball play, you're pretty quickly going to be trying to scrape out as many points as you can. (laughs) The three things I've noticed in tournaments where they do those kinds of adjustments to make them more difficult, the tight tilts, removing rubbers and posts, and lightning flippers. When they do all three, I think it's a little overboard, but which is the one you dislike the most? Yeah, setting up games for a tournament, or just in general, uh, is an absolute art. Like, there are... a bunch of things you have in your toolbox and you can use them for good (laughs) for your tournament or you can use them for evil and uh there's some tournament directors that have that uh that down and some that don't and so some of the yeah some of the things you have in your toolbox you can you can make the game more tilty 
You can change what the outlines are doing. You can pull outlines out. You can pull rubbers off outlines. You can make the game steeper. You can eliminate ball saves. You can change the rubber that's on the flippers. The biggest pet peeve I have is a poor choice, and you can actually put on shorter flippers, like lightning flippers. Uh, A poor choice in flipper rubber, or what that actually means to a game, can be very frustrating. It's kind of the main place that you have a kinetic feel with the ball and different types of rubber. Uh, Kind of the standard is black rubber is less bouncy and colored rubber is more bouncy. But these days we have silicone rubber that plays like garbage and super bands that I personally don't really like the way that they play. Other players do, uh, things like that. But they all react differently. And you put too many of these things in place without understanding the consequences of them all. And you can basically have a game that's unplayable or a game that doesn't reward skill as much as it does random chance or the random luck of figuring out what kind of crazy garbage is going on there. <laughs> That's a good point, too. I mean, I find when they put some of those massive rubbers on, I don't know if you saw it at Pinburg, but just playing some dollar games uh, for fun, of course, I was playing Mousing Around. I love the game. And I thought, oh, I, you know what? I'm, I know it's not the greatest shot in the world, but I can hit it every time. The center shot, once that's sound, piece of cake, done. Well, I didn't notice these massive silver dollar-like rubbers that were on. And uh, my buddy goes, what are you doing shooting that? I'm like, what do you mean? Oh, (laughs) I see what you see. Yeah, and stuff like that's great, you know. Yeah, you other other things in the tournament toolbox are you know adding larger rubber posts to things, or sometimes gigantic, weird rubber posts to things, like in the case of that mouse around. And that can be fun, you know. There's games that have exploits that are boring or make something kind of kind of linear strategy game. Mouse around uh, has been thought of to be that way. Uh, for a lot of people where you just shoot the center ramp. So sometimes you'll find tournaments where they've disabled the center ramp and it plays great um, or added bigger rubbers like you're talking about there. Though I do think that there's been a trend in tournament and competitive pinball and the way that different tournament directors have been choosing games lately that has kind of removed an interesting part of competitive pinball, which is that games that have a very repetitive strategy have basically all been everything but removed from the higher bits of competitive pinball and you used to not see that as much it was more of a of a balance and you'd get to see players on games where they could do the thing which was something perhaps repetitive or perhaps that all the players were going to try and do but the one that could execute it the best was going to be the one that won an example of that is a game like theater of magic where one of the best strategies is to just shoot the left orbit over and over again and you know that can be boring And so that game is just not used in competition a lot. But there are ways that you can set that game up where it takes an extremely high level of skill to pull that off and pull it off well or better than the other players. That it can be interesting to have a game like that uh, in a tournament bank sometimes. You know, with Theater of Magic, you make the slingshots really, really, really tight where they fire with just the littlest touch and you put bouncy flipper rubbers on it. And all of a sudden, that game turns into who can live catch the ball out of the right orbit and stick it to the flipper without it bouncing up and touching that slingshot, or else that ball goes wild and you're done. And uh, those types of things are really fun to play. I was surprised to see that at Indisc, but I believe Jim Belsito, correct me if I'm wrong, on the left orbit shot that you're talking about, put some, not diverter in, but something at the top so that it wouldn't come out the right orbit. And that really changed the game. And I was like, okay, it's not that chopping wood that we we talked about (laughs) yeah i I know that uh you know he's had some some fun ideas him and carl in the past about how to take games with stuff like that and and turn them into uh you know a more competitive experience 
uh, or give them a bit more depth in their strategy. And I, and I think that's great, you know, because they don't just eliminate the game straight off the bat. They kind of have tried to modify it a la mousing around in some kind of interesting way. But I do find it unfortunate when even just the kind of standard wood chop on some games hasn't uh, been used or just set up to be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, chopping wood and exploits are two different things. And again, you being the king of the exploits, some other games that come to mind. Judge Dredd. Yeah, Judge Dredd. I mean, you know, not so much of an exploit that uh, is unknown, but more just something that, uh, you know, a lot of players don't realize is the value of the left ramp on that game kind of just builds and builds and builds over the course of your ball to values that, you know, pretty much shadow every other type of scoring in that game. So playing that game where you're just basically looping left ramps, which is fairly easy on some on some Judge Dreads, and maybe picking up modes along the way and timing them out by shooting the left ramp some more <laughs> can give you, you know, grand champion scores fairly fairly rapidly. And for an opponent that doesn't quite understand that type of uh, strategy on that game, if, you, if you're in the groove and you're making your shots in that, it's pretty much the only way to play. I love playing the game Jackpot. I pray to God I never have to play against you. Uh, Jackpot is one of the kings, I think, of competitive pinball. And it's definitely the king of valid play field. There's amazing stuff that can go on in that game. You can plunge the ball into play. You can work on the grid up at the top that allows you to get to multi-ball. You can actually make progress on that grid and drain the ball and get it back. And you have to do that very skillfully or else you might just lose your ball. You can start multi-ball in that game. You can pick up jackpots in multi-ball, drain your ball, get it back, and have not even started your multi-ball yet and play out three to four jackpots in single-ball play. And All right, give us some of this. I mean, some people are going, what, what, what? Yeah, so on jackpot, you know, like it's one of those games where it classically entices you to do something that is a really bad idea. So it's got, on the right-hand side of the play field, it's got some pop bumpers, and past that there's this big spiral, and that's where the skill shot is, and it's telling you to shoot the skill shot. Well, what you want to do on that game is never shoot the skill shot, because it's going to put it in the pops, the ball's going to be wild, it's going to come flying out there, and you might just have a house ball down and out lane. But you can plunge the ball short, and it'll kind of dribble down, miss the pop bumpers, you get it on a flipper, and you're trapped. And you're like, all right, awesome, I've got three switch hits until this ball is live. You can take that ball and you can shoot it straight up the middle of that grid. You can pick off progress on the yellow, orange, green, blue, red targets. Hit one target, get control of the ball before it's hit anything else, trap it, make sure your ball hasn't started yet, dump it straight down in the drain. Game's going to put the ball right back in the shooter lane like nothing ever happened. But you got points, you got progress, and you're ready to go. So you can kind of translate that to the multi-ball in that game, where the multi-ball, you load the balls into the visor, these two locks, puts your third ball into the shooter lane. It's telling you, hey, plunge this ball. When it's in play, we're going to eject the rest of the balls. Your multi-ball is going to start. Well, at the point, all the jackpots are already lit. So you put that ball into play really short, get it on a flipper. doesn't know the ball's in there. Hit one of those jackpots, get your big award, dump that ball in the drain, puts it back in the shooter lane. It's like, hey, aren't you going to start your multi-ball? <laughs> you can do that for the jackpot that's underneath the ramp on the left. You can do it for the jackpot that's on the right at the hit-me target. And then you can throw the ball right up the left lane into the game saucer to reload all the jackpots and start your multi-ball right there. And you've got two jackpot progress. And the jackpots in that game build. So And they cap out at getting about 15 jackpots total, if I'm remembering correctly, which means that uh, you know, you've only got a limited amount of these that you're going to get. Most players don't make it all the way through that. And so it's like huge progress to be able to pull that off in that game. You're a sick man, Kaylee. You're a sick man. 
<laughs> I don't want to see this happen, but yeah, these are the t- you know these days it's it's tough. You uh, you kind of find a strategy or uh, you know something a little cheeky in the game, and you kind of only have one bullet before that's that cat's out of the bag. You do that jackpot strategy live on stream, and then everybody sees how to do it. It's much less word of mouth. It's much less world learning. So, uh, you know, I think a couple of uh, the better players have a few of these types of things in their back pocket hanging out to uh, use at the right time. <laughs> sure. So you admit it. There you go. No, no, that's that's a good point. You admit that you had some of these in your back pocket. You've used them in competition. And like you say, you get one crack at it and make it count. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's also like uh, on top of that, there's actually some funny risk in doing that, which can backfire on you, which is, you know, there's this weird thing in competitive pinball, which is like, well, if the software has a major malfunction bug, then we're going to call it such and the ball in play will be void because the player is earning a bunch of points in a strange method and we're going to kill their ball and have them restart or move to another machine, that kind of thing, right? Like that often happens like, oh, like. We've never seen this happen before. The game's doing something weird, shut down, or, you know, whatever. But for a ton of software bugs, if they're known, we've just all learned to be like, oh, well, we know that that's the thing. Of course that's happening. Play on, because that's how the game works when you do that stupid thing. A good example is Getaway High Speed 2. There's lots of different software versions of that. Uh, I'm not going to get too deep into it, but the kind of last and, in my opinion, best version of that software, when you play a multiball... There are ways which every jackpot you make, the software is kind of thinking that you're relocking balls, and it gets into a state where every third jackpot, it restarts multi-ball because it thinks you made three locks. And you kind of get a ball save, and a bunch of other weird things happen, but it's very unexpected and not what was intended in the original design of the game. But everybody that's played competitive pinball or played High Speed 2 kind of understand that that's a thing. So when it happens, it's not like, oh, what's happening? They're getting new balls, and there's a problem, you know, tournament director it's kind of like ah oh, he did the thing haha funny and we continue but you know if that had never happened before and nobody had ever seen it and live on stage at pinberg last game for the championship final of the tournament that were to happen and never somebody would absolutely be like what's going on he's getting ball saves he's getting new balls there's like jackpots lit like terrible tournament director something's wrong let's have a ruling uh so when you have a big exploit in your back pocket and you're going to pull it out at some point you know, there's a fine line there where uh, you might just get ruled against if uh, people don't know about it, which is kind of funny, I think. I know they're talking about new code for Ghostbusters. That definitely is needed, too, because you found some things on that as well. Yeah, Ghostbusters, uh, I mean, it takes... A, I like a lot of the little kind of, like, odd strategies that require a huge amount of skill and only a really good player can pull off, and I think those should remain and shouldn't get costed out of the game. I think that's what makes games really fun. You know, when a game's too balanced, then there's it loses a little bit of interest in trying to find your path to points. But on Ghostbusters, the left ramp, uh, when you shoot that, it builds, a, it builds a, a very small award value at the left stand-up targets just below the, uh, the scoop there for the proton pack. And so you shoot the ramp a couple times, and it says, oh, the proton pack's lit, shoot that and pick up your pity points of two million or whatever. Well, that, vault, that value holds ball-to-ball in that game. Uh, the award that is building from shooting that left ramp. And every time you shoot the left ramp, it adds value to that award, and it caps out at a certain point, but it gets pretty juicy at around 2, 3 million a shot. Um, well, if you spend your whole game shooting that left ramp, which is fairly loopable, I mean, they have loop supers, 
you know, you can build that up to two, three hundred million, four hundred million on its own and then cash it in. And of course, if what you're spending your whole skill shot time trying to do is light six X, then you can cash it in for billions. <laughs> and that's definitely the highest scoring uh, points per minute strategy in that game, I think. Yep, still don't like the game. <laughs> no, but it doesn't make it, it fun. It's, uh, no. I think that's one of the best integrations of theme uh, that we've seen in a pinball machine. Certainly up there for me. And uh, unfortunately, I think the gameplay falls flat uh, in lots of ways. And part of it is, I think, layout uh, makes the game a bit uncontrollable and goofy and weird and just lends to breaking a lot which is unfortunate, and, you know, things like magnet slings, which are a joke, and just kind of yes. a sideshow. But it's too bad, because I think the game is fun and sounds interesting, but from, like, a, a scoring standpoint and the satisfaction you get from achieving things in that game, it's, it's not very high on my list. It's a beautiful game to look at. You're right, those magnet slings are terrible. The only people I know who love Ghostbusters are people who actually paid for Ghostbusters. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Favorite Kaylee moment, this came from Josh Sharp. He said, IFPA number nine in Seattle, you and Donovan Step going at it on Spider-Man. Explain what you did there. Yeah, Donovan Step, he's a good friend. I love him, but I had to take him down in one of the most annoying ways possible. Uh, I've heard it referred to as doing the Kaylee thing. I'll take that. Yeah, we're playing Spider-Man, game nine. I seem to go to game nine a lot in IFPA, which for those that don't know the format, you kind of play six games. If you get tied, you go to a sudden death of two out of three. Therefore, game nine being you're both tied up, and that's for, for all the marbles. And uh, yeah, me and Donovan end up on Spider-Man. And when you really need a win on Spider-Man, you know, and you can shoot some shots, shooting that left orbit is kind of where it's at. Uh, if you can live trap balls. So kind of how that works is you get yourself into any multi-ball, you put as many balls as you can on a left flipper, you put a ball on the right flipper, you shoot that left orbit for the spinner, ball goes into the pops, it comes up to the upper flipper, you don't flip with that flipper, it comes down, you live trap it on the right, now you're back to one ball on the right, ball's on the left, and you do that over and over and over and over and over again. And what that does is the spinner can be pretty valuable in that game. If you're using your ball save time to hit the lock target, that's how the value of the spinner is built, so it's more valuable. Uh, you're getting bonus X from rollovers, you're getting uh, non-trivial points from pop bumpers, and in almost every multi-ball there, especially the Doc Ock modes, you're also getting little mini-pity jackpots up that left orbit. So uh, that was my strategy going into play with Donovan. You know, I'm going to left orbit all day and uh, put up a really uh, solid score with that. And so uh, Donovan played his ball one, uh, my ball one, I got myself into Doc Ock. Can't remember if I stacked it with Black Suit or not. Uh, started shooting that left orbit and probably shot it for 20 minutes or a half hour, which in, in competition is forever. And uh, at some point in that ball, lost my one ball on the right. So I had my two to three balls on the left, attempted to cradle separate, and we realized that the transistor for the left flipper had blown on the driver board because I'd been holding that flipper trapped for so long without deactivating the switch and back on again, and all the balls dumped into the drain. <laughs> So in the middle of the night after this game had gone way too long already and this round was already pressing things into midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, we then had to get a ruling, which was, well, we're going to try and fix the game and transfer a driver board from something else and give compensation balls and all that. And, uh, you know, we get something, I think, out of a stern NBA, toss it in there, it works, just gives me a look like, don't blow the transistor again or else the game's getting thrown out and you're already up by $100 million on Spider-Man. And so what do I do? I proceed to try and do the same thing. And 
Of course, I mean, you know, but no, every every couple shots, juggle the balls on the left a little bit, let that flipper cool down and uh, work. Give out. it a second, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, Donovan was not very happy about uh, about that level of chopping wood and boredom. I think from his perspective, <laughs> but I sure had fun. The Northwest Championships, something that you and Eden Stam used to look after. I know Raymond and Jermaine are looking after it now. For the longest time, you know, we we loved going to pinball events. Uh, you know, we had our favorites, things like Papa, you know, a bunch of other tournaments. Uh, you know, it never drains, all sorts of great events. And, and we always thought of Northwest as our way of kind of giving back to the tournament pinball community. It was doing our part. It was putting on an event that we felt was world-class. Uh, where we aspired to be the events that we felt were the best and put on a, an event in the way that we, we like to do it. And uh, so, yeah, Northwest, always a, a great bank of games, great tournaments. Yeah, a bunch of the Seattle guys are kind of running it now. Uh, Eden and I are more kind of at the tournament director advisor level these days because when I was in Europe, it just wasn't possible to run that anymore. And, uh, yeah, they've got uh, a lineup of games. It's a pump-and-dump, herb style. You can choose your games, get your best scores, uh, have a great Papa-style finals of uh, four-player groups playing across games for the win. It's been a great event. You know, it gets big prize pools, lots at stake, whopper points, all that fun stuff. And, and above all, it's always really fun. <laughs> We've seen Deadpool now with Stern. I assume you've seen a few exploits on that already? I haven't watched any of the gameplay. I've looked at the play field, and I guess I have... My one comment looking at it, I don't like to judge games before I play it, but the pinball industry does not have a good track record with having weird ramps that do not have direct access from the ball being shot at them. So I want to see how Deadpool holds up after being on location for a month or even fresh out of the box and the ball shooting around that little crooked orbit on the right and going up that ramp in the back of the play field. And when you hit that shot, in a way that you would expect if that ball makes the ramp 90% of the time. So that's what I want to know. Sure, with a fresh coil, it's going to be fine. I, I wonder that too. I wonder, will it rattle around? Well, I mean, The question it, is, it, will it? I mean, 50% of Avengers, I played out of the box, the Black Widow ramp was not makeable, and that was a direct shot from the flipper. It just kills so much speed, and it was so particular about the way that thing was bolted to the play field that that ramp was essentially broken on most games for me. So I'm super excited that they did something really unique with that playfield, and I'm really hoping it works. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, uh, but yeah, it does look like it's more makeable. All right, Kaylee, we've heard some of the things you like, some of the things you don't like. We've heard the formats you like. Give me your dream three-game lineup. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to choose the games that's the wet dream of every European tournament player on the universe in competitive pinball. We're going to pick The Shadow, we're going to pick Indy 500, and Dirty Harry. For some reason, those games, which all have upper right third flippers, (laughs) is what I always feel like is like, it's my interpretation of what Europe thinks high-end pinball should be played on. And... I would agree, I think. I think they are fantastic games. I own all three. They're all in my house. And I've just moved into a new apartment, and they're all going to be side by side, because who doesn't want the European lineup? 
for the longest time, anytime I go to a European tournament, it seemed like those games ended up in the lineup or in the bank. I think it's it's mainly because like just in that Williams era, so many games were shipped to Europe. You know, that was the heyday of of shipping games to Europe was mid nineties DMD stuff. So uh and for whatever reason those runs of games I should think were shipped a lot there and so they happen to be a lot around. So I think it's more of a volume thing, but uh you, you end up getting pitted head to head against any European player and uh don't think that they won't know how to play those games if you're picking. See now <laughs> I haven't played much on Indie five hundred. I like the game a lot. There aren't any around here so I don't get that much time on it. Well here's the quick breakdown of strategy on those games. Oh good, go, go, go. Yeah. Let's do this. Shadow. I can't hit the loop. Left orbit. I can't hit that loop. Loop combo. I can't do it. All there is, destroy all, take names. Done. One sentence. I agree. Dirty Harry, multi-ball grind modes. Okay. And roll in your playfield multiplier on a max left ramp, and you're done, which is very harder said than done. <laughs> and what do we got left? Indy. We got Indy 500. So that's all about grinding out the main multi-ball in that game. But... If you can figure out the exploit, you can stack it with Turbo Boost. What? And then every single jackpot is a super. And I'm not going to say how to do it. So that's everybody's homework. So now, <laughs> oh, that is cool. That's cool, Kaylee. And this is legit. This isn't you trying to get it out of a bank. This is legit. Okay. Yeah, that's one of the ones in the back pocket. And uh, everybody's got to figure it out for themselves. But you can stack Turbo Boost, which is big points for shooting the turbo. And the regular, regular multiball which is big points for shooting ramps. You stack them together, and all of a sudden, the ramps are lit for jackpots like normal. The turbo's lit for turbo jacks like normal, but the turbo's also lit for regular multi-ball supers all the time. Okay, I'm starting to tilt forum on this. People are going to hear this and go, what, what? So it's going on tilt forums. We've got to figure it out. But without saying the games, how many of these games, like Indy 500, do you have in your back pocket where there are a few other exploits that you haven't seen yet? No, this is a, a, a don't ask, don't tell situation. Oh, so, well, there's got to be more than that one. That will remain a mystery. It's greater than zero, <laughs> and it's less than 100. I'm scared. I'm scared. But you know what? <laughs> Skill alone makes you one of the top players. This is just a bonus, and it's been a lot of fun talking to you today. Uh, stay out west. Don't come my way. We'll just uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll meet up at Pinburg and Papa when it comes back. That's where I'll take the beating. You do your thing, I'll do my little grind out and pump and dumps and pay for my wins, all that kind of crap, all right? You, you do it the legitimate way, and I wish you the best of luck. Hey, everybody earns it. Everybody earns it. Thanks, and uh, <laughs> thanks for having me on. Take care. <laughs> Kaylee George, this has been the 150th Pinball Profile. You can find our group on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at Pinball Profile. Email pinballprofile at gmail.com, and please subscribe on either iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. I'm Jeff Teolis. Yeah, hashtag like and subscribe. Oh.